0: Who Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we're going to be talking about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the new Harry Potter spin-off movie, which is the first of a sequence of five films, which will take place over a 19-year period between 1926 and 1945. Morgan and I are both longtime Harry Potter fans. We both grew up with the series, and it was really kind of influential, at least on my cultural upbringing, and I think on Morgan's as well. And earlier this year, we did a podcast on the new stage play, which wasn't written by J.K. Rowling, but was kind of conceived by her, which we both found laughably bad in text form. I know that when you see it performed live, it's very impressive and people enjoy the special effects and performances, but the writing in that was just shocking. So that combined with some casting controversies with this film meant that I think we both went in with quite low expectations. So the presence of Johnny Depp, Did not fill us with enthusiasm, but like before that, (laughs) there was this long period of criticism of this film because it has a nearly all white cast, and uh, J.K. Rowling's writing is usually kind of about power structures and bigotry and oppression. And this story is about that. It's not got such an explicit racism message as the Harry Potter books, but it still is sort of weird and uncomfortable to watch in terms of the people they chose to play the main characters. Also, in just the framework of any piece of pop culture that's being shown to real people in the real world now, because it's like, why are you doing this? Um, But we will get into that more. Basically, I'm just trying to say we went into this with very low expectations. And I think for me, I enjoyed it like a great deal more than I was expecting. I found it to be very fun and kind of pleasant to watch. I loved all the magical creatures, but like the weaknesses in it are basically the opposite of what I would expect from a J.K. Rowling movie, because the characterization and storytelling were just straight up bad
1: yeah um i also found this sort of pleasant but compared to all the movies that marvel has done recently i found this much more watchable like by a million and like so much
0: um, it was, yeah it was refreshing and largely unpredictable and it was about nice people
1: yes <laughs> but those people had no personalities yeah yeah which was interesting so to give us sort of brief plot summary if you haven't seen this yet Eddie Redmayne plays a character named Newt Scamander, who is a sort of um, naturalist who comes to New York with this TARDIS suitcase, which is full of magical beasts, and some of them get out. And as a result of this, he's sort of picked up by this woman who works for the American equivalent of the Ministry for Magic. And they have very strict rules in America about fraternization with no badges, which is the American word for muggle. And so the fact that he's sort of Put that at risk is very bad, particularly because there's this movement in New York at the time that's very anti-witch, although the woman who's running it, who's played by Samantha Morton, doesn't have, like, concrete information about this, but because there have been these sort of violent episodes with this weird thing.
0: Yeah. There was some People kind of are sort like of beast expecting that's stuff's going destroying on. stuff in New York.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's very tense. There's a sort of bad situation and meanwhile this guy comes in and like, let's loose stuff. And they're like, no, this is, this is not great. Um, so they wind up like the two of them and then this muggle guy and the woman who's played by Catherine Watterson's sister all wind up in this sort of Motley Crew together after most of the film. And then Colin Farrell plays the head or who, she used to work for, but doesn't anymore, who's kind of the bad guy in the movie. It's all quite convoluted. But the plot is quite easy to follow, but the characters aren't people. Like, it's really quite staggering. They don't have personalities that make any coherent sense. Yeah. Eddie Redmayne, his entire motivation, like the only motivation that you get for him, is that one of his beasts was trafficked somewhere, and he wants to bring it back to Arizona.
0: I think we all agree, and everyone who also watched the movie agrees, that Colin Farrell's character is the best written and the best performed. But Newt commander is pretty simple, but I do, you know, I quite like him. I felt like he had the strongest characterization of the main four heroes, because you do kind of get that sense of him being just completely all encompassingly obsessed with magical creatures like he has such a strong sense of empathy you really feel how much he loves the creatures and why he's basically only motivated by wanting to protect them from harm and keep them and like study them and help other people understand them but like you said in terms of the other characters before i went into this movie like i went with my friend grace who also was a huge harry potter fan i mean she and her friend made up a game named Harry Potter charades that they play for (laughs) hours on end. That is like the level we're talking about here. There is a Hufflepuff banner in her house. But uh, so we went to this midnight screening and beforehand we were kind of lowering at each other's expectations because we were like, "Okay, what is the lowest bar of what you want for this film? And I was like, I want to like the magical creatures and I want there to not be fat jokes about the fat character. I got one of those (laughs) because the Muggle character basically He's quite nice. He's this sort of bumbling everyman role. A guy who works in a factory and he wants to open a bakery, but he can't because he doesn't have any money. And then he sort of gets swept up in this chaos where he's really excited about finding out about the magical world, but the wizards are obviously like, we need to wipe your memory. But it kind of didn't feel like he needed to be in the film. He was a comic relief character, but he didn't serve any kind of narrative purpose at all. And he's meant to have some kind of personality trait that just makes him really essential because... Of the two sisters, there's the serious one, Teeny, and then there's the kind of flirty, uh, girly one, Queenie, who basically falls in love with him at first sight because she sort of reads his mind and falls in love with him and thinks he's great and he's better than like any guy she's ever met. And it just feels really weird because it's like they're both very nice, but we don't see any of the qualities really that make him so much better than every other man. And it's also like another movie where there's just this really like amazing attractive women falling in love with this bumbling dude who's just like his main trait is that he's quite a nice man which is not exactly a trope that hollywood needs any more of it's like maybe right. if you kind of switch those roles around i'd be more on board but um beforehand also my friend and i were having a conversation about like who are the sisters and i sort of jokingly said oh there is the plain one and the pretty one thinking obviously that's like a really sexist statement to make and once we've seen the film we'll know more but literally after watching that film it's very hard to describe personality traits from either of those characters. Yeah, I mean, there's the pretty one who
1: is the pretty one who can read minds, and that's basically it. And then Catherine Watterson, Tina, is this woman who, like used to be an aura and then she sort of went too far in one of her cases, and so now she isn't an or anymore. But everything they kind of say about her job performance basically just suggests that she's quite bad at her job, which I don't... It's not that they're trying to suggest that. It's just that the plot dictates that she needs to have done X, Y, and Z, and therefore she does. But then I kind of was watching, and I was like, she's just not competent. <laughs> and then at various other points... She does things because, obviously, she has romantic feelings for Newt. But But that doesn't make any sense
0: either. Yeah, it's in a relatively low-key way. They don't really push that romance, which is fine, because they've got several movies to do it. But her motivation is very unclear, because... But we're going to go into spoilers further in the podcast, so don't be concerned right now. But basically, she changes her mind more than once about whether she wants to be defending Newt or trying to get her job back in a career-minded way. And it doesn't really have, like, there's no kind of moral continuity in terms of what her goals are.
1: Yeah. Even though Newt makes slightly more sense than the other three of them, there's nothing about the interactions that they have or about him that makes you understand why she would be changing her mind. Like, he's just this guy who kind of shows up with these creatures, and that's basically it. So when she's kind of like, I should have helped you, it's like, why? He's just this sort of person who's caused you a bunch of grief. Like, what's going on? Yeah, because
0: the the way I think it is maybe meant to be is... It's meant to be a story about people who are um, complicit in an unfair system of government. And then, you know, she decides that actually there is a better way. But her journey is that she kind of proves herself as an aura so she can get back into the good books of the American ministry, the Makusa. So it sort of fights itself in that regard. Like it doesn't, right. it doesn't feel consistent because you don't have... I mean, obviously, in all of J.K. Rowling's writing, the kind of government ministry kind of situation is morally ambiguous and complex in a way that I quite appreciate. But in this it didn't really make sense. And there was also like a massive inconsistency in kind of the core political topic that she's introduced. So the idea is that in the US, the main problem now is not kind of this battle between purebloods and muggleborns, but just any kind of contact with nomadges. So they're kind of trying to avoid another Salem situation. And then in Europe, uh, Grindelwald over the past few years has been causing chaos. And one of his goals, or I think maybe his main goal, is that he wants to uncover wizardkind, and trigger a war and there's like a couple of problems here so like first of all because the whole film is about newt scamander accidentally causing chaos and uncovering a bunch of magical stuff among the nomad new yorkers it's like he managed to do this by accident very easily so surely an evil extremely powerful terrorist would just be able to go into the middle of new york and start doing magic and basically uncover it right already it's kind of hard to see how this is going to progress because in later films obviously Grindelwald is going to have to have some victories or his followers are going to have to win some stuff because otherwise it's a meaningless battle. And then the second problem I have is with the whole issue of um, memory wiping people because the tension with the Nomad character Jacob Kowalski in this film is that even though they've made friends with him they know oh we're going to have to memory wipe him at the end because he's a muggle and he can't know about magic. And also the government officials are going around wiping people's memories all the time if they see any magic but they're, like, allowing this little cult of New Salem people to survive. And it's not really presented as a political movement. It's basically this woman who's kind of like the mum from Carrie, and she's adopted a bunch of orphans that she's manipulating by giving them free food, and some of them she's adopted and is abusing and she's making them give out leaflets and try and publicise her cause, which is generally not catching on, because it's the 1920s, and people are like, we don't care about the stupid idea you have that witches exist. Right. The idea is that Tina Goldstein, previously, as an aura, had been sort of tracking this cult. And it's clear that the magic people are really scared of the concept the cult represents, which is no nomadges finding magic and fighting against it. But it's like, it's literally one woman. Literally, just one woman who you can memory wipe, and all these kids are then going to be like, Oh, good, we're free from our weird abusive mother, right. and then they'll go about their ways. Even if a couple of them have bought into the cult, they can also be memory wiped. You have <laughs> solved the problem. And it's really clear also that the Makusa is really unethical because at one point, some characters get sentenced to death with basically no trials. They're not going to have qualms about dealing with this quite easily <laughs> solvable problem, but like you still have them existing. Kind of the framework they have is this woman who is really nasty and it's a very well depicted kind of child abuse story like jk rowling is very good at telling that type of story and you have ezra miller playing her adoptive son who is meant to be a young adult kind of i guess about 20 or something and he credence clearly incredibly miserable and hates himself and is constantly abused by his stepmother and uh colin farrell's horror character It's kind of using his weakness to manipulate him so he's using all this like physical affection telling him like oh you're like the only hope i really need you i trust you i need you to like inform on your mother and tell me about information that we can't talk about because it's spoilers (laughs) but um it's a very well-drawn relationship and it's really interesting to see the interactions between credence and colin farrell's character but it's a situation that's manufactured and you can just easily imagine how they could solve that without this whole rigmarole. Right, the whole plot doesn't really make
1: any sense, which is a problem. And when you combine that with the fact that the screenplay is quite baggy, so there are lots of scenes that don't actually contribute anything to the plot. And I think that is tied in with the magical beast stuff. So a lot of the really sort of fun stuff in the movie has to do with these beasts, which are all really well-rendered and fun. I think the best character in the film is the Niffler, which is <laughs> the one that sort of like yeah. loves to accumulate gold stuff. He's,
0: he's great. I love the Niffler. Um, I love Pickett, the little green stick insect that Eddie Redmayne yes. carries around him in real life now. Love him. Love the whole <laughs> scene where they just hang out in the zoo. But there are a couple scenes where
1: they're trying to catch them the sort of things that have gotten out and these little scenes will go on for like five minutes and they don't move the plot forward at all. Like they're not doing anything. There's one in central park that kept going on and on and on and on. And at a certain point I thought like, this might be amusing for children. Like I know why they put it in the film, but it doesn't actually tell us anything about the characters. It doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't do anything for the plot versus like the, the very opening scene is the Niffler gets out of Eddie Redmayne's case and sort of is, like, running around a bank, like, stealing people's stuff. And he has to run after it, and it sort of introduces you to him. He runs into Jacob Kowalski in the scene, and so it's... Like quite well done, because it's introducing you to these
0: various characters. It's sort of getting you around a physical place. And it's a very kind of, you know, it's obviously it's a film, but it's like a very film like scene. You know, it's something that only works in the context of it being a movie. And someone has had like a lot of conversations with J.K. Rowling, clearly. I mean, she collaborated with David Yates on some of the Harry Potter films and she's working with the same producers. And I think they helped her redraft the script several times. And clearly she's kind of learning how to do that part of screenwriting, but the film that I kind of was thinking about after watching this is Pirates of the Caribbean, because the pacing in Pirates of the Caribbean is perfect, and it's kind of the same tone they're going for. It obviously doesn't have anything remotely political to it at all, but it's that sort of combination of slightly darker stuff and just lots of silly, fast-moving action sequences and fantasy.
1: Yeah, but the idea that you can just sort of throw in scenes that are like, The fun stuff, like, that's not how movies
0: Yeah, well, that's why I was kind of comparing (laughs) it, like, unfavorably to of the Caribbean, because every scene in that that's sort of, like, a silly scene or an action scene is propelling things forward. Yes,
1: yeah, no, that movie is one of the best sort of blockbusters of that type that I've ever seen, I think. Tragically, also starring Johnny Depp. (laughs) Oh, dear. But uh, it is interesting to me, though, that that the sort of Colin Farrell, Ezra Miller stuff is in there, because it's so much more interesting than anything else in the movie, and it... That also could have used a lot more sort of character development, but it shows that and obviously we've read the books so like it's a dollar, she's incapable of writing like interesting characters. But there is this sort of seed of something in there. And what she's best at is doing this sort of like abused child thing. And so when she gets back to that, it immediately becomes more interesting, versus when she's writing these like vaguely pleasant people. And it's like, I don't want to read, like or just watch that. Like, that's boring to me. And obviously the whole movie can't be this, like, weird, fucked up psychosexual situation with Colin Farrell and Ezra Miller. But it was striking how immediately more engaging the movie became to me when they got to the scene and it's
0: so unexpected because like even though it's harder to give a great deal of information in a film rather than a book part of the reason why people write so much fanfic about harry potter is because every single character including ones that are only there for about a page are so well realized like they're so distinct there's really obscure characters who people are obsessed with and you can like write a book about and it's the same thing with her world building which is also harder in a movie but that, that kind of is now taken over by sort of special effects and background rather than writing But in terms of characterization, it's like wild because you can look at like a character like Colin Creevy, you know, in Harry Potter, has like a more distinct personality than any of the four characters in this movie, right? Just the idea also of Queenie where her introductory scene is... It's literally just like Jessica Rabbit. She's sort of posing. She's like really kind of pretty and like she's putting on a dressing gown in an attractive way for like the two men. It's like she's literally never met a man before. And it's like, I understand that you have a limited dating pool because you can't ever speak to no madges. But no human woman is sort of like, a couple of gentleman collars have arrived, and they're sort of like, putting on her negligee, and then, it was just so weird to me. It
1: was, Because it like, was it's totally serious. fine to
0: have that kind of dynamic between the two sisters, whether it is the pretty one and the plain one. But that was illustrated mostly through performance and costuming and hair choices. But we also didn't even see what their relationship is like, so, they haven't set no. up one of these weird, like, you know, kind of sexist sister conflicts, like, they're jealous of each other things. But they also haven't really illustrated anything apart from the fact that they live together and obviously one of them gets worried about the other one when she's in trouble. That is not a relationship.
1: No, it was so superficial. Everything about it was so superficial. And even the stuff with Colin Farrell and Ezra Miller, though definitely better written, I think benefited hugely from the performances mm. of
0: the two of them. But that's and fine because, like, they had they were given the kernel of like what they had in terms right. of conflict.
1: And I think the two of them and Samantha Morton, who's an excellent actress, but who kind of didn't have a ton to work with, like the three of them are probably the best actors in the film. But like Eddie Redmayne is an excellent actor and tried his damnedest to like make something of the nothing he was given. He's a nice,
0: and, charming man,
1: right? And I think they sort of were lucky. I mean, obviously, a million people auditioned for this, but. He is pleasant enough and charming enough to watch that it's very helpful for the film. And I think it's part of the reason why when you watch it, you're kind of like, oh, this is nice. Because he's just a pleasant person to watch, but he's just sort of there. His face is nice. Like
0: There's not a lot going on. I mean, there were kind of aspects of him where it just made me really curious about his backstory. I just feel like it would have been so much better obviously if we knew more because i don't really care much about the fact that they've mentioned that he perhaps had a really close relationship with one of the lestrange kids we see that he has a photo of her and they were clearly friends in hogwarts which is an interesting character detail we'll clearly find out more about in other movies but i was kind of more interested In the early 20th century framework of his character because his role kind of reminds me of the naturalist Gerald Durrell who wrote books like uh, My Family and Other Animals which I love and I would highly recommend which are about someone who his main interest in life is animals from a young age he's just completely obsessed with animals and he studies them and like grows up to become a zoologist and basically kick-started this non-entertainment based zoological movement in Britain I think like in the early 20th century he was born in like 1925 You know, that part came through really strongly because obviously half the movie is him interacting with these animals. But also at the same time, we know that he has lived through a world war because although I don't think the muggle first world war and wizarding one directly overlapped they mention that his brother is a war hero he mentions that he mostly worked with dragons during the war when his muggle friend talks about being a veteran and also we know that they've just kind of wrapped up the first uprising of grindelwald and now grindelwald is on the run so you've got this idea where there's this character who's presented as being very naive and sweet-hearted and lovely but he's also probably a traumatized war veteran and i'm like none of this (laughs) none of this has appeared on screen and it's such a cool interesting concept right but they've not put it in. No, it's um, not remotely yeah. textual. No. Like the Zero. Because I was so interested by that. It was just like, this is definitely the most interesting aspect of his character to me. I also thought that. I was like, what? You could have done yeah. so much. And also, I realize we're now picking random stuff out of hats in terms of like <laughs> the unevenness, but something else I was thinking about afterwards is while they've kind of set up this new conflict with American wizardry, they haven't illustrated the ways in which that makes life difficult or different for magical people living in New York because they basically dress in muggle clothes. Colin Farrell's aura outfit is a bit magical looking but I would say they look even less wizardy than the characters in the Harry Potter books. And my assumption is that's so they blend in with muggles and nobody sees them because it's sort of more integrated. But it's simultaneously more integrated and more segregated, right? So we're supposed to assume that they're all living in just like random parts of muggle New York instead of having an inbuilt part of the city that's like magical London. But they're not allowed to interact with nomadges really, except I guess to go and buy groceries or something. (laughs) And we don't really see kind of the evidence of a cultural divide in the same way as Britain, which doesn't really make sense to me, right? So... Either you have to have a situation where American magical education is deeply entrenched in like muggle studies where everyone has to basically learn how to hide themselves. So there's no cultural differences or they just haven't written that in. And because they don't explain that, I'm sort of like, if they had never allowed to speak to nomadges, wouldn't there be a higher level of prejudice and a higher level of misunderstanding? But we don't see the same bigotry as we see in the Harry Potter books and films where people actually have more interactions. Like, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make <laughs> any sense. Which
1: I think ties... Because you have stuff in Harry head.
0: Potter, where it's like, Arthur Weasley, who's obsessed with muggle culture, doesn't know how to wear trousers, you know?
1: Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can tie this in, actually, to the race controversy in a sort of paradoxical way. Like, obviously, this is not the same, but one of the things that struck, stood out to me, we could sort of come at this backwards, is that it doesn't feel like 1920s New York at all, this movie. It feels like not the present, and obviously this is taking place in a world where magic exists, so it's not like it has to be like the epitome of historical realism in that sense. But the way this film is shot and the city is depicted felt completely detached from historical reality to me, even outside of the race thing which we'll get into like yeah it just doesn't it's
0: look clean and also the extras are very generic so like i think the costuming in this film is very good and also the person who's designing the costumes had a difficult position because the harry potter films most of the wizarding costumes already look historical so it's quite difficult to make things look more historical than that right. already um so that right. part like in terms of accuracy wasn't a problem but there's crowd scenes where it's just like a bunch of people wearing quite clean well put together 1920s costumes Everyone is white, and it's in like a wide open kind of Broadway street. Right. It looks like people on the set of a movie. Yeah.
1: Which is what it is. And so there's this very sort of fake feeling to the whole thing, which is then compounded by the fact that none of the people feel like real people. It really feels like you are watching a film, which is fine, but the whole thing felt very odd to me in that way. And then when you compound that with the fact
0: that everyone is white, it just is weird. The I mean, it was almost was like so the set weird. from the musical. It looked like it looked yeah. like a musical set because it didn't have, you know, I mean, the magical urban scenes in Harry Potter are far more realistic. There is dirt. It's really crowded. <laughs> there is unevenness in the buildings. They've made sure because they know it's a fantasy movie. They've made sure that there's individual extras that have personality and that kind of thing. And I just didn't really see that in this. Like the the magical no. creature design and the personalities they have for the magical creatures were brilliant. Like I loved them, even though I think it probably would have been slightly better with more practical effects and less CGI. Yeah, I didn't really have a problem with that. But the, just the lack of depth in the nineteen twenties thing was so bizarre and unnecessary. Like you said, it's just compounded by kind of the racism of the casting. Which was so... They go to a speakeasy, (sighs) right? Because like, after I saw the film, I reviewed it, and one of my internet friends was sort of like, the one thing I want to (laughs) know is do they have one scene where they go to a speakeasy full of black people who are set dressing in the background? And I was like, they do not. What they do do is they go to a wizarding speakeasy where they have a black goblin woman singer who I think is played by a real singer in real life. I don't know who, but... um." she is kind of in the background as entertainment and then the goblin character they have who actually has lines is like a white guy who is a goblin and then sort of the idea of their speakeasy concept is they're gonna have a bunch of magical people and creatures house elf and stuff and it's like this is weird you felt the need to have like an underground kind of situation like it would have been bad in the way my friend described as well because that also would have been like that's very racist The whole thing is this weird Hollywood white supremacy thing, and it's not like J.K. Rowling is unaware of this criticism, you know? Right, it was just, the whole thing felt really strange to me, both
1: in terms of actual race, but on top of that, 1920s New York individual kind of national identity and ethnicity was quite an important thing in New York
0: City. Yeah, right, so like that, is, <laughs> that is incorporated into the four main characters, right? Because you have, you have um, the muggle guy is named Kowalski, so I think you're supposed to assume that he comes from a Polish immigrant family. And yeah. then the two sisters are named Goldstein. And before I watched the movie, I was talking with a friend about sort of the trajectory of this franchise and how it's obviously going to be overlapping with the rise of fascism and the second world war and she was like well obviously we have these two jewish main characters and although obviously that's kind of like a religion is something that doesn't really come up in the harry potter franchise but from watching this film you wouldn't really see that at all like you can't like you don't know it's kind of tricky because it's sort of like it's just a name so like you can't tell but also it feels like that's something that should be present and it would also be extremely relevant to like her political climate and the whole setting of the movie and they haven't gone into it. And the Kowalski thing too, like clearly these names are deliberate but you get no sense of actual
1: culture. No. In any way from any of these characters and that or or the sets or anything and then you combine that with the fact that everyone is white i it was just sort of surreally bizarre to me. I was like, obviously New York now that is also completely unrealistic and weird, but in terms of trying to depict this, like, historical
0: time... Yeah. And they've also, they've, in in terms of the casting, the way, what they've done is they've cast, like, the one person who isn't white in the movie is the president of the American Magical Council. Her personality is relatively minimal and she's, I mean, it is a role, but it's not, like, a particularly interesting character and she's only on screen for about 10 minutes and a lot of her role is sort of expository it just makes it even more complicated and difficult to understand because it's like are we meant to assume that this is kind of an obama situation where she's been elected in like a very racist environment and it's unusual or are we supposed to believe that there is no discrimination and racism in the magical world even though it's almost all white and they've got this weird like muggle magical conflict going on like it's completely inconsistent once again (laughs) so i think
1: that that is that they cast a black person last minute because everyone was freaking out yeah i think that's the answer there's no there's no textual anything going on there but yeah it was just really just very strange to watch and i was thinking about other sort of depictions of that time or like early 20th century New York I mean The Immigrant is one of my favorite movies Came out a couple years ago No one saw it But I would highly recommend you seek it out It takes place in like 1922 or something And it's also all about white people But it's about like Polish immigrants In a very very specific way Marion Cotillard is the lead But she speaks a lot of Polish in this movie Like it's, it's very sort of textured or um, The Nick takes place 1900, I think, so it's not exactly the same, but there's a lot of sort of very thoughtful depictions of what it was like to be a black man in New York at that time. And also, just on the level of production design and costumes and stuff, they both feel really, really realistic. And this movie is obviously trying to do something different, which is fine, but it winds up in this weird, uncanny valley place. Yeah, of like, and it's like, part,
0: part of it, one can definitely poop on jk rowling's shoulders because she knows nothing about american history clearly a lot of it's like you know we have experienced filmmakers working on this a lot of production design this is not her baby and also she has like a lot of creative input from people who have more experience with screenplays because she was kind of having her trading wheels for this which is fine but i haven't read in much depth the additional material that is on potter that she wrote for it
1: because <laughs> i love
0: harry potter so much and the stuff that she's done for the american world building is just deeply flawed and misinformed and I am not a historian. I'm also not American. But when I read this, I'm like, I can tell this is wrong. It doesn't understand stuff. Like, it doesn't take into account anything to do with race. And there's a bunch of Native American mythology that's sort of hodgepodge from different storytelling styles that's kind of been put in to the backstory of the wizarding school in America. And it's really unfortunate. And it really well, I... illustrates that she doesn't – she has such a complex – knowledge and understanding of the british class system which is what the whole harry potter franchise is about and she really pinpoints british class structure and how that interacts with like money and breeding and that kind of thing and that just goes out the window of the american setting entirely
1: right and the central sort of i mean this sort okay. of always saying that everyone sort of thing that everyone says about uh the us and the uk is like it's the central sort of obsession And, like, trauma in the U.K. is class, and in the U.S. it's race. And, obviously, these things are not mutually exclusive, but I think that on a certain level that is true. And, yeah, so the idea that you could do this big thing about America that takes place in the past, I mean, or the present, of course, but that this is, like, the American version and not address race is so insane and stupid.
0: Like, what? (laughs) The Warcraft movie had a more diverse cast.
1: Right. oh my god yeah and like none of the reviews of this movie except like yours that i saw mentioned this
0: and i just thought we are living in a strange world <laughs> it's really because i i need to read some reviews because um i know that the guardian review by peter bradshaw um sort of wrote about it in the context of politics and it was sort of like this is a really good film for the trump era so i need to t- check that out myself and read that because it's a movie about every single person who has influence on the storyline is a white person and most of them are white men but anyway i think that's actually a good starting point to start talking about spoilers because yes like to talk about the ending and also there's some information that was revealed by the producer almost immediately after the film came out that now changes a lot of our opinions about this film and the future of the franchise so if you don't want to know about the end of the film Stop now, but I'm assuming you've probably watched the film or you don't care. But anyway, right. let's talk about the ending.
1: <laughs> so if you haven't watched it and for some reason are still listening, we'll very briefly say that like the thing that's sort of terrorizing New York winds up being this thing called an, obs- an Obscurus, which is essentially a magical person who's been extremely suppressed um, and hasn't been able to develop their magic. The magic kind of leaves their body and becomes this bad thing called an obscurus
0: um i mean it's an interesting concept like it's something that children can understand and the yeah. design they use for the film is so effective like i've seen a lot of movies where there's like an evil bat cloud that is going to hurt people and the design they used for this was you know it was individual and it worked very well and i liked the concept
1: i thought this is actually one of the most interesting things in the movie they had actually done something with it in a more interesting way and it's, it's supposed to be sort of like Children can only live up to, like, maybe maximum of ten with this because it comes from such a deep trauma that you can't sustain it. Um, and so you're meant to think this is uh, Ezra Miller's younger sister. And it winds up being Ezra Miller, which is quite obvious from early on, but it doesn't really... it's fine. As a twist, it doesn't really matter that you see it coming. And I found this sort of effective also because the scenes with him and Colin Farrell are so unbelievably sexual That there's sort of a resonance there also like this person is clearly on many levels not expressing anything and what winds up happening is that Colin Farrell is trying to get him to get access to the younger sister because he thinks she's the one
0: yeah and kind of the the implication is that he wants the power of the Obscurus it's not like he wants to I mean obviously the government wants to solve this problem in some way hopefully by destroying the Obscurus but possibly by saving the child and he wants a cool, powerful beast that he can unleash on people.
1: Right, Um, and so after having manipulated Ezra Miller for a while in this sort of quite intense way, he is quite cruel to him when he doesn't think he's useful anymore, which turns out to be a bad move because the only thing that was keeping him going was this fake relationship, Um, and then he kind of loses it and turns into an evil cloud, and this all goes very poorly. But I found the sort of climax of the movie simultaneously interesting from that angle of those characters but then also like it literally just for like 10 minutes is this cloud like running around New York smashing things and then Eddie Redmayne tries to talk it down despite the fact that he and Ezra Miller Credence have never met before which I thought was odd but he's the main character so he has to be the one who does this I was like "Mm -hmm." I don't
0: know about that, like, okay. But then they essentially destroy this cloud, so obviously Eddie Redmayne and his friends want to save the guy, because they know that he basically doesn't deserve this punishment, he can't control the damage that he's doing, which is a really interesting story. And then the auras show up, and they basically destroy this thing, and then arrest Colin Farrell's character. And then we get the big reveal, (laughs) (laughs) that Colin Farrell was Johnny Depp slash Grindelwald all along. And... I feel like even if it wasn't Johnny Depp, I would still be annoyed by this, but the fact that it is Johnny Depp and then you see, you know, just a few seconds of Johnny Depp's performance as Grindelwald, it's like Colin Farrell is phenomenal and very unsettling and kind of manipulative and charming in this film. And he also has a lot of um, physicality. He has a lot of kind of physical intimidation and looming and it's just fantastic. And then there's just kind of Johnny Depp with a little blonde moustache being mean, right? (laughs) <laughs> and then in the context of this being an abuse storyline and then the real life context of Johnny Depp himself, it's grotesque. it's like so bad it's so bad. Well also what's
1: I found so interesting about Colin Farrell's performance right is that like he is a bad bad man. it's very obvious from the beginning but he's also I think supposed to be quite sexy. he he is quite sexy but also you're like this is really gross and then what the film does they do a really good job of like it's gross the whole time but it's sort of crosses a line from gross to really, really bad in a very clear way when he sort of decides that he's done using this kid. It's like, yeah. oh, no, I'm done with you.
0: And he feels powerful. Yes. You know, and he's someone who knows that he feels powerful and knows how to use that power over other people. And he has like a real sense of certainty and solidness about him.
1: Yeah. And the simple fact of the matter is that Colin Farrell is a better actor than Johnny Depp. That is, a, I think, objectively a true statement. Yeah, I mean,
0: I've seen a lot of films with Johnny Depp in them, and he has not given an interesting or fresh performance in, like, well over a decade. Probably over 15 years. Well,
1: Pirates of the Caribbean was 2003.
0: Yeah. That was probably... Pirates of the Caribbean is good, but also he was playing a version of a character that he played at least once before, because he borrowed a lot of his mannerisms and speaking style from his Hunter S. Thompson performance.
1: Yeah. But the idea that they would cast... Even before all this abuse stuff sort of came out, because this was filmed before that. The idea that they would be like, I know what we should do. We should get Colin Farrell to play like the appetizer for Johnny Depp. Like, what are you...
0: (laughs) I just do not understand. I'm I'm just boggled. I am boggled. And And then we got the news from the producer, David Heyman, who, first of all, I have to kind of preface this with the caveat that This was a single interview he's done, and obviously he knows how the next five films are going to pan out, because J.K. Rowling is a planner, and she has planned, I am sure, a very specific kind of storyline. But he gave an interview where he talked about a scene that they decided not to include in the film in the end, and kind of the repercussions it will have for later in the franchise. So when Credence, Ezra Miller, dies in the film, it's slightly ambiguous, because there's a little bit of the cloud left over. Um, And I was like, okay, whatever, ambiguous death. But apparently originally there was a scene where we see him getting into a boat. Um, So the implication would be obviously he's alive and also he is going to be rejoining in the next film because the next film is going to take place in Europe. But in this same interview, they asked David Heyman, oh, how about Dumbledore's role? And he was like, yeah, Dumbledore is going to have a big role in the next one, which I kind of assumed anyway, because they've been casting him. But he was then like, this franchise basically is going to focus a great deal more on the interactions between Dumbledore, Grindelwald, and Credence for the later films. And kind of the way he phrased it made it seem like, although they've called the franchise Fantastic Beasts, maybe they'll kind of drop the title later, I don't know. Newt is the main character in the next one, and we'll see reappearances from the main characters in this one. But then after that, it's going to be taken over by these three other characters, First of all, I'm sure you're going to add some women, but maybe don't make another franchise about power plays between white men. Also, we've kind of seen some Dumbledore already, and while I know it's tempting to revisit characters and see their earlier lives, maybe you do some fresh stuff. And also, why do we have to have a whole franchise about Johnny Depp? Like, that is an actively not good idea. I just
1: don't understand. It is
0: boggling to me.
1: It, it, I, I, I am speechless. The whole thing is just beyond my comprehension. And again, when you, like, watch Colin Farrell turn into Johnny Depp's horrible face, and they've also put, like, these weird contacts, the bad hair and the weird little mustache. He is not meant to look appealing, but also it's just particularly, like, ugh, like, I don't want to look at you for multiple reasons. Like, I just don't need this on...
0: Oh Yeah. I, I, it's really... And I, I think I'm I think I'm going to write about this next week um at work but definitely it puts a new spin on the Dumbledore Grinderwald Grindelwald relationship because obviously Dumbledore is gay and I'm assuming that's going to be something that will come up in later films but the relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald it hasn't really been hammered out canonically we know that they had this close friendship and then they kind of split up and became enemies but still kind of had correspondence I think they wrote letters when Grindelwald was in jail for like 100 years uh, and um, but if they do have this thing where they had a relationship and they do kind of have Grindelwald as gay, this is like by far the most prominent piece of queer representation in popular media, like by far. It was controversial when Sulu had a husband who didn't have any dialogue in Star Trek, you know? So like in this children's movie, you are going to have an evil predatory gay villain and then Dumbledore. (laughs) And I'm like, I just don't... I'm not optimistic about this, you know, because obviously it's possible that I'm judging this unfairly because we don't know how it's going to pan out in future films. But like, that is not a good idea, right? But, no. like, why would you do this? Especially with Johnny Depp.
1: I Yeah, it is. It's real bad. I just wish they
0: had recast him. He's in like three shots yeah. of the whole movie. They could so easily have reshot that. Obviously, when the news came out that Johnny Depp had been cast, I was kind of thinking back at the timeline of when the movie was filmed and they clearly must have cast him before that whole scandal came out but his role is so small they could have reshot it so they decided to like see if it would blow over and then not reshoot it but even though JK Rowling kind of didn't acknowledge the news like on social media or anything at the time which kind of indicated to me that she was not happy then like once the film came out I read an interview yesterday that was her kind of talking about how much she likes his performance and how much she was inspired by him and like how much he thinks it's going to shape uh, her writing of Grindelwald in later movies and I'm like okay, you've clearly seen a lot more of his performance, because she's presumably seen his, you know, I, I'm assuming he did an audition, because he's too famous for yeah. auditions now, but, like, she's seen more of what his vision for Grindelwald is. But from the limited screen time he had in this movie, I don't really get where she's coming from. And also, yeah. from an ethical perspective, it's very puzzling to me.
1: Yes. I mean, I have some sympathy for her on that, because I think, like, obviously wish she had just said, like, this is gross and bad. But... She's slightly in between a rock and a hard place, right? Like, I have much less sympathy for, like, the Warner Brothers people who, like, what the fuck. But this is her baby, and then this happens. And I feel like for women especially, it's sort of like, well now you're screwed, Like, right? Like, either, it's definitely not her decision to recast that. Like, she, there's no way she had any power over that. And so either she can make a fuss for, the, for, like, the next ten years about this, or can just, I mean, which I think would have been the right thing to do, but it's kind of, like, I understand being like, great, what the fuck am I supposed to do now about this? Which is why they should have just recast him. And shot the fucking three shots he's in. Like, oh my god. Because, I I mean, that's clearly
0: what they did with um, the Lestrange girl. Because they announced Zoe Kravitz was cast in, like, an unnamed role long after it had finished filming. They were like, oh, she's got a secret role. And, like, clearly they just put her in, like, a studio somewhere and filmed her for a moving picture for, like, 10 seconds, you know? Yeah. They're kind of retroactively putting her in it. And obviously that's a smaller role, but, like, yeah. I mean, I feel like we're beating a dead horse at this point. Like, we've definitely reiterated our point several times, but, uh, it wouldn't have been a good choice even pre yeah. all this. I mean, but... yeah, even pre-Scandal, like people were having so many conversations about how he's not a draw for films, right? Yeah. For Parts of the Caribbean specifically, people are fond of Captain Jack Sparrow, but every other film he's done recently has either been not successful because of his presence, it's been successful coincidentally because it's a big movie, or it's been actively bad in a flop. And I yeah. don't think he's been praised for a performance in many, many years. I mean, he fucking made Mordecai last year, you know? Right! <laughs> The great critical hit,
1: Mordecai. But ironically, like, every single review of this that I have read has been like, Colin Farrell is easily the best thing about this movie. I was like, yeah, no shit he is. And, I mean, I'm glad Colin Farrell will be doing more worthwhile things with his time than this franchise, frankly. But it is slightly galling. This is why straight men should not be in charge of Hollywood, in my opinion. Because let me tell you, this shit would not have happened. If only women were were making these decisions. No fucking way. Just a a surreal moment when that happened on the screen. I'd never felt more betrayed. I was like, fuck all of you. (laughs) like
0: And also, like, I know quite a lot of people kind of predicted it towards the beginning because um, I think when Morgan was talking about this on Twitter, someone replied being like, yeah, it was really obvious that he was Grindelwald from the beginning because they have the same haircut. And I remember when I was watching the film, I was like, oh, it's interesting they're drawing parallels between these two characters because they have the same haircut. I didn't even consider. So, like, I'm a naive fool. But obviously, you don't want to go through the film knowing he's Grindelwald. But at the same time,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think that sound sums up my feelings as well. And on that note, we will conclude this.
0: I mean, uh... if if only the next four movies were about Newt's commander and a diverse cast of new characters with good personalities starting a zoo. (laughs) Because as someone who has read virtually every book by Gerald Durrell about him starting zoos, I would happily watch that. (laughs) But alas, alas, it is not to be.
1: Um, Next week, we will be watching another movie about fascism. A more effective movie about fascism. (laughs) Than this film which doesn't really work uh we're re-watching Casablanca
0: and talking about it which Gav has so many feelings oh Cas- my god like <laughs> just this week I've been thinking about Casablanca so much um I'm not gonna be re-watching it because I saw it about six months ago but Casablanca is perfect every time you watch it it is wonderful it has a great deal of very interesting things to say about war and fighting against fascism and refugees and border control and many other very interesting topics and I highly recommend it if you've not seen it of course because it's the best film (laughs) and we are going to be discussing it in joyous depth next week yes I have seen it before
1: but not for a while so I will be re-watching it and I'm very much looking forward to it so yeah tune back in for that thank you as ever for listening if you enjoyed this please leave a rating or review on iTunes it's how we find new listeners and as always you can Find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcasts. Bye.